Welcome to Freedive, to go deeper and emerge with a greater appreciation. Join us as we take a deep dive into the people, skills and expertise of Pensar's infrastructure specialists and their unusual approach to making complicated problems simple. Tune in for the stories behind the solutions and the personalities behind the expertise. G'day, Pat. Afternoon, Carl. Troy. Hey, mate. Welcome to the podcast, gentlemen. Thanks for having us. Today, winning together, exploring high-performing teams. That's why we've got the gold medalist in the house. <laughs> that didn't straight take away, long. straight that didn't ice, take long. immediately. So I'm here with uh, Paddy Newell, director of Pensar, and Troy Elder. Really, it's there to make Pat look good most of the time. Actually, all of the time. It's not a difficult job. <laughs> Troy essentially is to IC in the water business and looks after the operations of of the water water division. Now, um, we might jump to Troy since you segued in there, Paddy. We'll probably just kick off, give people a little bit of a background on yourselves personally and just what brings you to here, I guess, and a bit of your backstory. So, Troy, I'd love to hear a bit about the background, mate. A bit of a long story, mate. Yeah, <laughs> been around a people while. Are, people yeah. are interested. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, age is getting away from me a little bit, so a long way from where I started. But yeah, I came back to Brisbane back in 2006 and it was a, a cycling chance meet with Carl, I think, and then you actually asked, what are you doing? I'm like, nothing. <laughs> And uh, you said, uh, well, you want to come and fill in some time? I said, okay, what's filling in time? Oh, well, you just go and drive around with, uh, with Cully or someone. I'm like, okay, I'd met, I'd met Nick before. And then that's where the journey of Pensar started was filling in some time and then asking me to do a bit more time and here I am 15, 16 years later. It's coming up uh, to 20 Still doing years. it. Yeah. yeah. Sorry about that, mate. <laughs> <laughs> but before that, I was, at that time, I was at a bit of a transition from being a, an athlete in a, uh, in a high-performance program with the Kookaburras, uh, a hockey team, for those who aren't familiar with the term of the Kookaburras. But yeah, they, we went through a bit of a transition in that team from amateur into sort of semi-professional to still in semi-professional. But there's a big transition from that for me, from that environment to working but then when i realized it's actually not that big a transition mm. as far as teams go well it's all people right yeah are they still semi-professional now they are professional without the pay yeah <laughs> for love yeah they do get paid but yeah it's a any athlete these days they have to there's a lot of sacrifice out there so mm. um doesn't matter what you're doing apart from uh, getting paid more or less what was the last game for the kookaburras when 2007 in brisbane did you start with Penzar and still were playing for them? Yeah. So you legitimately had a national player in the... <laughs> I was actually back home just training, yeah. And I actually had nothing to do between playing in Europe and being back in Australia. It was on holiday, so mm. essentially. And the intro would have been through Mike. Yes. Yeah. Yep. So for those who don't know, Michael Bissett was with Pensar from about 02, maybe... Yeah, spring probably days, was yeah. 2002, and Troy and Mike are brother-in-laws. So we love a family tie-in. That was the original intro. Yeah. So, Paddy, your um, bit of backstory: grew up on the Goldie. Definitely not a professional athlete. So, <laughs> premiers for rugby. That's about as high as I got. Yeah. So, Gold Coast raised, born in Melbourne, but yeah, mainly Gold Coast, and then uni on the you coast. Born in Melbourne. Yeah, it was just for a couple of years, and then 
snuck out of there. It was too cold. <laughs> and uh, then uni on the Gold Coast and had a link with Penzar through a guy, Pete Van Esseveld, who was a lovely old guy that was a contracts manager for Penzar for a number of years, who used to be an area manager at Fulton's when I was there at, during uni. And so he gave us a call. Might have been a couple of weeks before I finished fifth year of uni and said, what are you doing? Said nothing. Similar to Troy's sort of story and then asked if I wanted a gig and then I think I had a catch up with you, Thorpey, and Clint mm-hmm. Thorpe and Biss, who were the three heads of the group back, mm. that was in 09. And then I remember sitting at that long table at the end of Donkin Street near the fishbowl. It was like mm. a big dining the table where we had lunch. Yeah, the board, the board table was just that lunch oh, sort the of, lunch one, yeah. that huge, that white one with oh, the timber trim yeah, on it. Do you yeah, remember yeah. that one? Yeah. Um, and met each of you for like 15 minutes each or something from memory. And then that was on a Thursday. And then I finished uni the next day and I started on Monday. And I think I drove <laughs> home a brand new ute that day even. Or it might have been the next day I got dropped off for my yeah. dad and got a new ute and then that was it. Must have been good times. Must have been good times. <laughs> it was only a, yeah. So, and then that's all I've known since. So mm-hmm. I don't know any other real company. We're all full-time experience other than Penza, actually. No, I I'm pretty much the same, to be honest with you, these days, 20 plus years in the seat. Troy, whereabouts did you grow up? I grew up in Bundaberg, born uh, in Bunbury. I don't know what my parents were thinking. They packed up and travelled over to Western Australia for some work whilst I was um, being born. So then, yeah, most of my life in, well, actually, my early life in Bundaberg, then Mm. the rest of the time I've been away. I wouldn't mind just, you and I have had chats over the years about the early career in sport, and I guess... That's probably where the segue into the high-performing teams really comes from. But I remember asking you once, I had to do a, a talk at school where I went to school to the year 12s and I actually came to you for some inspiration and said, well, tell me a bit about what it was like for you as a hockey player at school level. And I was really interested in your story, which I then rebadged as my story, but <laughs> I referenced you, of course. <laughs> But it was around the fact that a lot of people when they're young think they need to be in the A side, the rep side, the Queensland team, and they get disheartened and sometimes uh, give up. And you probably remember what I was talking about. And I'd be just keen to, for you to jump in here and tell me, you know, from your perspective, you know, as a 15, 14-year-old playing hockey, where you were at and did you ever think, you'd be voted world's best hockey player one day? No, yeah, to answer that question, no. You enjoy doing things and the foundation I was growing up in the country is that I didn't have the expectations or the emulations there of people to try and meet because no one expects anybody from the country to, to really make it back then. It was a big leap to get there. But, yeah, it was definitely challenging because I had – my own expectations and I had, you know, drive to want to do something well. And I think probably changed a little bit over the years in thinking about this is that how you get that drive and what, what makes you better. And it came from my, uh, my brother-in-law who's a cane farmer actually and he's into speed race, uh, ski racing and stuff like that. And anyway. Water ski. Water skiing. And, yeah. You know, people always complain, you know, when they're behind the boat about, the drop, you didn't take off, you know, smooth enough or you, the conditions aren't very good. And he's like, well, it just makes you better. Mm. Like, really? And I was like, that's an awesome approach is it doesn't matter what's out there. It makes you better. And when you're in that environment, in that environment where I was, was 
playing in an environment where there wasn't that many, you know, good players as such. You just have to be better to make the team better. So being a better leader or, you know, being a better coach or being of better assistance or, you know, making something easier for them to do and knowing what they're trying to achieve as well. So I think that's changed, that was part of growing up in the, in the country environment. You didn't play just one sport. You didn't just play or do one thing. You did multiple things and you weren't always the best at everything. So it gives you a bit of a foundation for, for doing that but working in a team. Like to get what you want out of it. That's a long-winded answer. I know. <laughs> well, but, I'm interested too in that you sort of told me about these young superstars that were gifted at the sport, made all the rep sides, and so they had all the talent. And there's this idea that here's Troy, 15, 16-year-old, probably hasn't made the state team at this point, knocking on the door but had the drive and the attitude and the work ethic. And then I remember you telling me that there was a point at which the talented ones wouldn't listen as much to what the coach was saying, wouldn't work as hard on the things that they needed to work on to become better. And then they become, they sort of almost plateau. And then the guys like yourself who have got the talent sitting there, but they've also combined that with the work ethic. And yeah, definitely hard work. Is that from, the, off. from your your uncle, is that seeing him physically working on the farm and you having to be on the farm with him and just experiencing what hard work looks like or? No, sport's a little bit, maturity is a big thing. Like, you know, you can be a mature young person or uh, you can be an immature older person and a little bit of that drive. If, if you're mature as a, a skilled player and whatever you're doing, your drive goes down because you do it easier, I suppose. It can do. Some some put it together and you get, you know, you know, the goats that are out there. But yeah. there's the others which are, you know, they don't mature until a little bit later. So if they hang around, they're really good. You know, the eighty percent performer hundred percent of the time versus the, you know, the you know, hundred and twenty percent performer ten percent of the time mentality that you in a team you need to trust people and there's a big foundation on trust as a part of that. That's what you gain by having those, having that longevity, I suppose, or being able to sustain it for that period of time. You you learn how to deal with adversity, not being selected or not being, you know, the best at something, but trying to be better. Is it about getting your average up then? So instead of being getting your high school, being the best, it's what's your average because that's what matters every other day. Yeah, without aiming for mediocrity, you're aiming, you know, you're performing at a consistent level, but you can always, you know, do better. Mm. It sounds like what's that mantra always say? You, you will be better. We will be better. We will be better. We will be better. I pulled a um, a little quote that I heard recently, which relates to this, and it says, uh, it "Goes like this: Work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard." <laughs> and it sort of fits, you know, neatly into what you're talking about. The talented, if you can combine work ethic and talent, you know, obviously to be in the Olympics, you're going to have talent, right? But if you can combine those two, it's such a rare offering, right? Yeah. But more often than not, work ethic and attitude will get people where they want to go 10 times over. The difference the between good and best, you know? Yeah. What's good you to be the best is, you know, you're not bad. It's just good it's like, and best. It's like when we hire someone, now we say if they've got the right attitude, that's they're 90% of the way there because you go, I can teach them if they're willing to learn. And if they've got the right attitude, they'll get there. Whereas if you get a yeah. really bright kid but they just don't have that attitude to – probably you touched on, want to listen yeah. and take on more and, you know, grow, then they're going to tap out pretty soon. So, I mean, interestingly, I think the intersection of sport 
and work is just so profound. Look, it's the common link is people <clears throat> and a team output. So it kind of, in my mind, the two are almost, you know, you can substitute one for the other. But when you talk, I mean, both of you guys, when you talk about what are the characteristics that you're going to look for in a good team player to achieve what I'm assuming we're looking, I mean, high performance is thrown around as a term a lot, but if a team's to reach its potential, I guess, what are the characteristics of the people that you're looking for in that team? Well, the first thing we always get hung up on is the inquisitive nature of people, asking Mm -hmm. why, and Troy and I get to our own detriment sometimes ask why too much, but I think it it means you're open to learning and understanding other perspectives and other information, which if you're not inquisitive, you won't ask those questions and find out more. So again, we get hung up on that sometimes, but that inquisitive to me is a pretty strong characteristic. Mm-hmm. Being curious. You're curious. To quote yeah. Ted Lasso, or well, probably he quoted somebody else, but <laughs> <laughs> you can requote it. That's okay. That's probably one. Someone I like people who they're taking notes and listening and open to, you know, changing their perspective. If new information comes that proves that their thought basis might be a little bit off from center or a little bit misaligned, that you've got to be willing to change your position on things over time. It's such a strong human trait that is hard to break is that if it's in your mind, it's real and it, that's the answer. And to train a mind out of that thinking to say, these are the facts and this is how I'm interpreting them, but that, well, yeah. that your facts could be quite different and, and then we arrive at the outcome. But I think this idea of having confirmation bias, that having an idea and assuming that that's correct and the only answer, I think, is a real problem in a team. Well, maybe at the end of that sentence you say, well, maybe. Yes. Because everything, it's, well, this is right. Well, maybe. Yeah. Until I get some information that tells me it's not right. Yeah. And you've got to be open to that change. Some people aren't. That's the maturity maturity. of the group that you're after. That's a big, big, big part of decision-making is having the maturity of a group to aim for the same thing but doing it in a way that's together versus everybody getting there on their own makes a big difference and a big part of the the success or the actually time of success. In your hockey days, can you sort of pinpoint different personality types that were constructive and versus destructive in the team environment? Yeah, profile people, strikers, midfielders and defenders. Strikers are out and out, have a go, think later. This is a generalisation. It's not <laughs> just the only way. The midfielders are a little bit of, bo- a bit of defensive mm-hmm. caution and also they've got that a, a little bit of attacking flair and they, you know, a bit of striker in them. But they generally sit on the fence but make a decision pretty quickly. And defenders are always overcautious. They never, they have always seem to be the, you know, the rock or the steady foundation that will, you know, if we're conservative, if we don't let goals in, then we're not going to lose. Yep. What position you were you? I've played a couple of different roles. This might be an insight. <laughs> midfielder. Midfielder was where I'd probably say I sat the most. But I think even in in a group, you'd be better served to have a different range, a different type of person in the group that are far left, far right, or however you want to describe it. you just got to have diverse people in the group to ensure you're making considered decisions. What about the balance between, in that environment, star performer versus team player? I assume the striker, let's just put it, if someone has a, you know, triple the success rate of scoring goals as a striker versus someone who's one third the ability and then, but 
they're a bit prickly. They're a star. But where do you see that? It's a difficult management, but it's worth managing. You can always, you know, you can put them in a group environment. You need individual flair. You need all those people within your group. It's just having the maturity of the group to help them manage them in the team. So it's self-driven, I think, not, yeah, with yeah, all the guidance. I often see all this stuff in sports teams where someone is a, a bit of a rogue, not maybe even a rogue, but just seriously talented and doesn't fit the mould. And I'm often concerned that sometimes they get put out of a team environment when I think harnessing that raw talent we don't want to lose that talent because that's the you know Tard, that's the X that's factor, that X right? factor piece. But you, I think it's the same with the work setting. You're trying to utilize the X factor whilst maybe taming some of the other combative qualities or whatever those destructive qualities could be. Yeah, and to of the course benefit. there are non-negotiables, right? There's always those things which these are the minimum expectations, but beyond that, there's some leeway, I guess, in how people operate. Yeah, you got to give freedom, flair, but they've you know you got to work within the the framework that you. Like, <laughs> we hate that reference because it was an old safety guy that we didn't get much uh, engagement with, but he's, he had a, a saying, freedom in the framework. It was like the football field. You can run anywhere on the football field, just don't go out. You know, Within that, the two touchlines, you can do a fair bit of your own thinking, I suppose. And the same thing with work is freedom in the framework. Give them a framework, but it allows enough room for flair and individuality to flourish, I suppose, in that setting. Probably giving them the why. Why do we need to have this game plan why do we need to have this non-negotiables why do we need this that vision piece yeah providing them with the transparency that you know they're not just always feeling like they're being restricted there's a big thing so giving them flair giving the opportunity to to do it but you've still got the conforming part which needs to be there for the team it's interesting that because we always seem to find a lot in terms of say from an engineering standpoint a lot of engineers that come to us haven't had much exposure to financial control of their projects and they're somewhat surprised when they we give them give them that and we say well the reason is we want you to make just better decisions if you know more you'll you know if you understand the vision you'll be able to inform yourself and and direct the project to suit and it seems odd to us but it's so foreign to them and but we think it's yeah we've got that vision piece right so you know there's remember that sund story s-u-n-d-t that we uh, passed around years ago and there's about a company in the u.s that got into trouble similar style of company to us that had silos and one of the key reasons for the failure of that business was the lack of transparency around the numbers and the financials and what's going well and what's not so people were in the dark they couldn't adjust to suit and it's a good sort of point at which I think we've built our business on a completely transparent basis anyone can see how projects are performing good bad ugly and that way everyone is is not that everyone has the time to do that, but it's there and we don't yeah. hide it. And how important do you guys think transparency in a team that's trying to be high performing to reach its potential? What do you how important do you think that is? I mean, there's always a level of individual privacy around certain things. And again, there's certain non-negotiables, to, you know, that you don't talk about in a team setting. But apart from those minor things, I can't see why you wouldn't want to share more because then if nothing else, everyone understands the the overall perspective and where the project could head, and then you can decide to impact that. Whereas if you don't know, you're cutting off a whole piece of of energy from people where they don't if they don't know what they could contribute to, they won't. So I think it's critical to me. Yeah, if you want to make decisions, people have to be making decisions. You can get out of touch of making decisions as well. Mm. So giving empowering them to be able to do that, I think that transparency is like 
you can make decisions. Mm. And the aim is that we're doing, we're aiming for this, but you've got the power to make decisions. People have a, an ownership to it. So they'll drive yeah, their yeah. own culture. They'll drive their own. You want to um, matter. Yeah. That's the thing about mattering. If you know that your decision matters in the context of the job or the context of a project, then if you're not there, that project suffers. And I think that validation that you make a difference is really important. I think a lot of places people might think that if they're not there, it doesn't make any difference because they're not able to make those decisions. And we want the opposite. You want all the decisions to be with those people so they get ultimate personal satisfaction when it goes well and ultimate personal learnings when it doesn't go well, mm. hopefully, if, if it doesn't go well. We're sort of saying layers of responsibilities. Decision-making is someone, you know, you get to the final decision, but there's layers of responsibility within that that you've worked within so you can get to that to this, like that decision then it's a group it's basically just a group yeah, you decision you got to couple it with that overarching piece that we're in it together because if you create too much individuality then it's your fault if it went wrong so there's individual decision making framed in a group setting that we're all in it if it goes well it goes well together even though we made individual decisions but if it goes not so well well we were all in on that too i think that's a big trust piece and again once you've got the context of the the whole project in in its entirety you can be better informed in that space you talked about we touched on it just a few moments ago around the why and it's possibly something that we haven't really done particularly well is the vision and sort of like what's the mission vision and goal of pensar and i feel like we're moving into a with the transaction behind us, that's something that I think, you know, that we can start to invest more heavily in because there is, you know, there's the succession piece is sorted and we can think big picture now. But when you think about, say, your hockey experience, Troy, like was there ever much within that team, was there much discussion, you know, and, and maybe this was a bit before a lot of these terminology came about, but was there much discussion from the coach who I believe was one of the best coaches of all time around the purpose and mission and vision slash goal for that hockey site. Yeah, I think probably we're forefront leaders in a lot of that, you know, not a professional uh, sport, but administration wise, I think we took a lot of steps towards that. And there's a lot of models that were taken from our group and the AIS back then, the Australian Institute of Sport that other countries modelled what was being done and what had been done. But there was a lot, yeah, there was definitely a, a mission statement, we call it, back then, or you had, you know, what's your culture? But that was the aim. So the aim is you don't have to describe everything, but let all your uh, your key personnel and, and your people help decide and fill in the gap, you know, fill in all the detail because, you know, you become a dictator then if you, if you tell everybody. Is it as simple as we just want to win hockey games? Tell me, like, how do you unpeel that onion? Because, you know, if you focus from experience just on the result, often you fall short and you guys never fell short. So ours were selfless, committed and relentless. I like that. So if you had foundational yeah. pieces and by doing those things, you'll get to the goal in any hmm. case. It's like, like <clears throat> what is culture? What is, you know, what are your standards and what do you use them for? So you use them to make decisions, you know, based on those key aims and you say, can I make every decision with those aims in what I'm trying to achieve? You say, well, am I, you know, am I committed? Am I selfless or am I relentless? And if you're at training and, you, and things weren't going so well, it was like, well, here's the three words. Which ones aren't we doing or are we doing? 
But you link that all the time for like our core values and the guiding principles that have been set up more recently. You can use those as that sort of similar approach where, yeah. you know, we do that in the annual reviews where you talk about against the, hmm. um, are we following those in that decision you made or that approach? And if you are, you're probably going to be all right. Because hmm. then that's the fill in the gaps for the, the rest of the team fills in the gaps. So you don't have to dictate or discuss every single aspect and outcome. In terms of that, another thing I was I heard recently around this whole thing is the idea that you want to be doing things that matter with people that matter and in the service of our values, which is a nice way to link the team, what you're doing, and the culture and how you behave you know, as a team. One of the other things, Troy, that you and Pat have been very strong on over the years is, is systems and processes. And where do you see the role of operating systems and processes in performance outcome? We talk about it a lot, but we put it down on need to put it down on paper a lot more. Just the scalable things and transferable information is that if it's reliant just on the one person delivering it, then it's not going to be scalable. But also, it's not in a a platform or an, an easy way to to reference. You can't decipher it. It needs somebody to do that. Then mm. you. It's not an easy, it won't be easy, but there's also that personality, you know, that you put to it, you know, Pat's been at the forefront of a lot of stuff within our business that I see, you know, waiting to speak or or listening. There's a big difference between that and sort of that approach towards the group is like, you know, not what you say, how you say it type mentality as well. But yeah, systems are super important is that you've got to have the framework or the aim. It's sort of, we talk about transferable information for sort of the 80% of what we do because if it takes us 500 hours to train someone and some level of transferable information can dial that back to 50, well, that onboards someone quicker and saves us time and in a more consistent manner. So if that vision is a certain scale or goal, you're helping that vision by doing that and it's you're still going to leave that that room or that flexibility for individuality but most of the stuff we're talking about are let's say standard practices and we know what good looks like in that piece so we want to share that as quick as we can whilst people can comment and challenge as much as they want to for improving it but it's, it's usually for more generic processes i suppose to save us all time having to train seven people the same way and, and questioning if it's done the same way you've got you know, a data set that tells someone, well, you follow that, that's what good looks like to us. And you do that, you'll be right for 80% of the stuff and then focus your energy on the 20% that's flexible, which is, you know, that variable problem-solving piece. Keeping the core, like you, you said earlier, like the core people, the core values or the whatever it is, is keeping that core central to the performance, which is what you've got to where you are now. Like how can you build on that? Yeah, you must have something good. Yeah, you keep doing good. Don't, uh, we put it back into a sports scenario is like if you want to learn something new add something new but don't forget to do the the core stuff that got you there good's good you can always improve on other stuff or add stuff to it but yeah you keep coming back to those parts i mean as i get older <laughs> i sort of think critical systems are as they're critical as the name suggests but i do sometimes think that we collectively over systemize things when you think about the amount of paperwork and steps to follow in just in a project sense, it kind of in a way can constrict someone's freedom and ability to operate sort of within that framework that you talked about. And one of the things that I think a lot about is how do we flip the 80-20 and just have the 20% of activities that are like super critical, call them hypercritical to get right, 
and almost let the 80% sort of run their course. But because you can't control everything. But it's definitely something that I've been reflecting on to think, well, what are those, what are those handful of things, even from a safety sense or even from a financial management sense, that must be done? That's what we keep talking about. It's, just, it's, <laughs> yeah. just, it's, it's transferable stuff. It's the Bible, but it's the it's what are those things and not everything, but just, you know, what are those like there's lots of things that you do in a project or in delivering something. And I so. think that if we were able to you know, it's something that we can work on, but if we're able to sort of distill it down to a distill it yeah. down and almost take that off the shoulders that I've got to get these hundred activities right in this order, that's debilitating, particularly if you want people who are free thinking and entrepreneurial in their mindset. I think it's as well like for our, as you progress away from the yeah. project face all the time, you actually forget how detailed some of that stuff is. So part of this in the training Bible stuff we're talking about now is writing it down everything and then probably distilling that back to say, well, these are actually trying to reconcile what did I do and what was good because you forget like, you know, if I don't do end of month financials now, I actually forget half the steps that are involved. So that's why you need it written down so someone else can actually do it properly. But also then once you've got it written down to go, well, out of that, all that data, what's the five things, 10 things that are non-negotiable, that are critical, that if you do that, you'll be 80% right, even though it's only 20% of the um, data. Yeah. You've got to have a game plan. Put into sport is like we have a game plan. You've got so many different ways of doing things. You can adjust and you can be nimble, but it's making decision. What's going to be for this game? Like what? Like you've got to draw upon all of the What's things. What look that like you, for this game? Yeah, you've got to distill it down at some that point. That sounds so. like a big piece around the ability to adapt to a changing environment. Well, that's and to be able to, to think on your feet. And that's coining old Pete Herbert's term. He's like, the job of our, our job is in project delivery is just to problem solve again and again and again until the job's done. And that's about that being nimble that you might have a game plan and then it's pivoting that every day, every hour on the job because the game plan's not working, whatever not working looks like. And that leads problem into experience. Solving. Yeah, yeah. What's experience? Just be able to problem solve more make efficiently, it, isn't it? What yeah, we, make, yeah. You make decisions faster because you've seen or, or you, you know, you might get, three solutions to it, but you can pick the, out of those three solutions hmm. a couple of things that'll work. It may not be exactly the same as what you did last time, but you use the principles like you can just get there faster than somebody that hasn't seen hmm. it before. So. That's what we're saying. That's career development reviews. You say to most of the young kids coming up is you could probably be in that next role right now, but you just need that time piece around going through a few problems to try and solve them to have that better comprehension of what works best in what scenario. And you can't really beat that without time. Like you can, you can know the systems and processes and be really competent, all that thing, those aspects. But until you've actually gone through some of those problems, it's kind of hard to know how you're going to solve them. (laughs) We use diamonds and rocks in like in sport. Like you can have a really young team, they're enthusiastic and they'll win and they'll win by, you know, really easily and play unbelievable. But the next game, you could be all the mistakes in the world. You set out with the same expectations, but it's just that level of maturity to make decisions, you know, how what's changed and being adaptable that they haven't, you know, they're not yet to experience that. So, so they can gain about it. it. Like if you, there's a thing there, isn't there, around, I guess, nerves, fear, the fear of the unknown. I'm, I'm thinking about what it must have been like the first time the night before you ran out with the Australian jersey on your back. Yeah, there's a link now. So Gold Medal Ready program was a program they ran post Rio. So just so I can jump in there, um, Troy is the holder of a Olympic gold medal. Just in case I didn't, and a silver, 
point that out a little Bron- earlier. Bronze, bronze in, in, a, in a team. So, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah I so think taking um, compliments is, is not a trait of high-performing teams by the nah. sounds of it. <laughs> Humility is. <laughs> That's what I get really – like I can talk about this stuff all day, but sit me in front of a group of people and kids and stuff and talk about myself and about my – and what I did, I get so nervous. I get nervous <laughs> of doing it. It's hard. I find talking about this stuff. A lot easier. So goal ready, goal, goal medal, medal ready. ready on the back of Rio. Our worst performing, you know, not my quote, but the worst performing Olympic team we've had. And the feedback was that they were not prepared. They weren't prepared. There was too many unknowns. It's like, well, you can tell somebody as many times as you like, they're not ready to receive the information, then they won't take it on board. But it's about being prepared. And it's not about whether they received it yet but it's product placing that information. So the experience comes. I can tell you, Carl could tell me, you know, every day for a couple of years, the same thing over and over that, um, you know, don't do this or look out for this and I won't. And then I'll get there and I'm like, oh, that's right. He was talking about that hmm. and you hadn't thought about it prior. So that was a big thing with Rio was why they didn't perform so well. It was all those unknown things and experiences basically, but they had an inexperienced group as such. Wasn't as many prior medalists mm. that went into it. So mm. Sydney was the – Sydney and then Athens was the highest performing, but they spent a lot of money on doing that, which the Poms copied. And then they did really well after London Olympics and they got a couple of cycles after that. They did really well. And that was all about experience and understand. And they had a group of people that went from one to the next and so their performance was up. Mm. So it's just on experience and, and – uh, but product placing more than anything, that you're not – it's not too early – to provide experience. One thing I've heard some people talk about in this sort of realm around high performance is that getting used to nerves because a lot of people think I shouldn't be feeling this anxiety or this nerves about my performance that I need to deliver tomorrow. And it's not about getting rid of the nerves. It's just about becoming comfortable with them and and realising and convincing yourself that it means you're doing something important. You if you weren't really doing anything important, you wouldn't be feeling that way and almost that acceptance and saying, ah, oh, okay, here's the nerves. It means I'm doing something important. Uh, I'm switching on. It's around the possible outcomes. So what outcomes are on the back of that? I think, Pat, you provided me with a lot of stuff around, is it a problem today? Will it be a problem tomorrow? Will it be a problem in a week? Will it be a problem in a month? Like it's the unknown Contextualizing bit. it, I suppose, a little bit. Yeah. Because I think people are drawn to the negative and then you'll focus a lot of your energy on that. And if you've got something like nerves, you feel what you feel. That's whatever you feel is fine. That's what you feel like acknowledging that, but then going, how can I utilize that energy? Because if you're going for a, you know, a run by yourself, you're not going to have nerves probably. But if you're going for a run in a race against people, you're probably going to have nerves. Well, if you could utilize that, you're probably going to be better off in that race than if you didn't have that energy. But that's just contextualizing time as in, not that today's issue isn't a problem, but it's an issue today, not tomorrow. It's probably not that big a problem. So mm. how much energy are you going to put to it? And I think that's where we all get caught sometimes is, you know, someone will cut you off in traffic and you'll think it's the world's worst issue. And then one hour later, you couldn't remember that that was an issue. But mm. in that five seconds, it's taken over all about. brain space. There's fear of unknown. Like what's next, you know, the war testing. So if you, you know. And then what? Scenarios. Then what? Yeah. yeah. So going along, what are you nervous about? Oh, well. I'm nervous because of this. Oh, okay, well, what if that happens? It's running it to ground the scenario because yeah. most letting outcomes- the, Letting the scenario play yeah. out. Yeah, and you keep yeah. saying that. And are what? you comfortable with that outcome? Yeah. And if that outcome is shocking, 
okay, well, let's put some energy into working through that one. But I think most people, if you don't think about the root cause outcome- 90% of you, outcomes aren't Your subconscious material. will make it way more mm. drastic than it probably is in reality. So you got to let your reality mm. talk it out. We spend a lot of time with a psychologist, a sports psych in a group environment, not individual context, but around that war testing and scenario-based learning. So what happens if you're at this point and this happens? And you're like, oh, okay, don't know. Well, maybe we talk about, like, could we come up with a solution for that? How that gold medal ready program, that was the biggest thing that came out of it was that nearly every gold medal had a story behind it that it, you, they had to overcome some sort of adversity to get there and and or change. So having that resilience and ability to work through these issues, but breaking it down the way you've said is probably a key way to be able to achieve that. And they thought about it at yeah. some point, potentially. Well, we do some it ways. Had, How yeah. much do we do that at work now? So like if we've got a doing work on a bankman near a river and we mm. say, well, what happens if it floods? What happens then? You say, well, let's play that scenario out. And what does the client think is going to happen? What do you think is going to happen? Because then it, if it happens, you're like, okay, I already pre-planned that outcome. I kind of knew 90% of where it was going to go. Mm. It's not all new. Again, you can't do it with everything, but that's where the experience comes in. You say, well, in this scenario, here's what I could see to be the good and bad outcomes. Have you thought about all those and planned each one out? And if you have, then you're probably going to be in a good spot. Let's bring it back into some of the team-related stuff. And I jotted down a few, a few comments that, Pat, you and I have sort of shared over the years and also with Troy, but I'll throw a couple of concepts at you and see see what your comment is. Meritocracy, what does that mean to you guys? I think you create your own pathway of progression and probably trust within the business too. Like a, a lot of times in, for me, meritocracy is if you've shown your output as a person over time, then that dictates your future. Yeah, meritocracy being you can own something in there, you know, yourself working within that environment with others. But yeah, you get what you put in out of it. You build that ledger. And I think that's, this is, then it's a responsibility of the leadership to reward. And to recognize that, yeah. And I think yep. it's who you promote and who you don't that dictates a lot about the business. And there has been plenty of times over the years where, you know, I've seen people progress that probably didn't earn it as much as somebody else and it's never ended well. <laughs> mm. When there is a lack of cronyism and when people get rewarded because they're good at what they do and they've delivered results. You want the whole team to genuinely say, yeah, yeah he's, he or she, yeah, or they, yeah. they've earned that. Yep, yeah. 100% not. Oh, that's not right. What's the phrase we use? Equally versus fairly? Oh, yeah, yeah. Not everyone's treated equally, but they are all treated fairly. As in, say, You're hey, talking about your kids? <laughs> well, that's something, but they're all it quite applies to everything. Yeah. Teams, it's family. It's like same. Like if you're employing project managers, they're not all paid equally, but they're all paid fairly for what their perception of skill is within yeah. a framework or within a. You know, so I think one of the key things there is politics. Internal politics in a team is is corrosive, I and mean, has no place. <laughs> it comes back to transparency as well. Like if you've got the clear, there's transparency within the business for that, then everyone. They're not wondering what they're wondering, they're, you know, what is it that I'm missing out on? And probably the big thing with sport is that equality, parity, people, you know, they're on different levels. At some point, you've got to have some equal standing in the group and dealing with, you know, how I get treated. But if, you, if we're always trying, always trying to be fair, 
not equal, I think that helps to sustain that, you know, cohesion a bit. A simple example these days is um, flexibility in the workplace. Like mm. an like inherent thing now is someone, your flexibility is not my flexibility. But mm. if we have a fair amount of flexibility each, your flexibility might be picking the kids up in the afternoon. I might not have kids, so that flexibility for me is irrelevant. Mm. But I might like a different type of flexibility for some other reason. So in that scenario, you can't be equal because mm. we've all got a an unequal background or a different background or different need. But if you're fair, then your flexibility and mine should be roughly even. And how do you define that? Very hard. But again, it comes back to if you've got that team environment and everyone's got the right mentality around it, then you'll inherently find the fair outcome. What about, I mean, you think about this, imagine what it would be like in that hockey team, Australian hockey team, if you were the right on the edge of the cut each time. And one time you're in the team, next time you're not, and you think you're hardly done by, and then the person coming in thinks, oh my goodness, I'm only just hanging on in this team. How does that work and does that get complicated? Good question. I was going to share an example. The pivotal point, I think, the significant change in our group that helped us win the gold medal. We're always a great team. We're in the top three forever, but we'd never won a gold medal in the entirety. So silvers and bronzes and noise, all these things. But there was a pay difference. Mm. So people who played in some of the major tournaments, they got 80% of the small amount of money there was. You're talking about you know, crumbs, you know, you're not you're talking about $18,000 a year, you know, like so sharing was a big thing. But we had an old group and then so an older team, but then there was this transition to our group which was coming, emerging, and we're all of the same age but we a little a few of us had grown up in that or we'd experienced this 80-20 rule. So the biggest decision we made was around sharing the funding amongst the training group, broader group, which meant going from 16 to then sharing it with 24. But we made the biggest step by saying everyone's going to get a base and then everybody will then, if you go away, you get a top up for being away. But everyone felt like then they paid for training and for the success of the group. So then the outcome, you're not as concerned if you didn't make that run on site in that time because you've been recognised for the work that you're doing. Yeah, you're helping to develop the group versus the I can detract from and be selfish, not selfless uh, in that work environment or in that team environment that I could just be training for myself versus training for the team. And I don't get the reward for going away. I also don't get the reward for training to make you better to go away. There was a lot of discussion off the field around it by the management, but for the team, we couldn't see. We say, well, just, it was easy. We'd made the decision in probably about 20 minutes within that group. But I think that group was a little bit biased, but it was a very mature group. Sounds like you had everything aligning. There must have been a good coach and a good administrator at the top, plus a good player group, and you combine all those things and the result speaks for itself. Yeah, very broad-minded, open-minded, but there was a lot of And that right structure. Attackers, you know, midfielders, defenders. Where did that key leadership come from? It was literally the player. So we developed it but also the coach being comfortable enough to give the liberty, I suppose, and you call it liberty, but to give him the information to be able to then provide a structure for. Like was it self-forming that sort of that group or did the coach dictate that group? Individually very strong-willed, very strong-minded, very 
talented and skilled group, but they're all coaches. They're all now like oh, now. they are now high performance coaches or they are coaches or they can coach versus other groups where they're not, there's not as many of them. They, you know, part from the sport never to be seen again. <laughs> again yeah. It's, it's only through growing through all that that you understand it, but yeah, it's. What about coachability? Huge. Yeah. So uh, what does that mean to you? What does someone who's coachable look like? Not a yeah, but. So <laughs> little phrase I use with the kids these days, whether it's correctness or not, but what comes out of a but, it's usually crap. <laughs> so a yeah, but is, uh, there was no yeah, but. So it was like, okay, if we did that, not yeah, but, or if I did that, not yeah, but. And we had a no sorries in the group. Yeah, no sorries, just I'll be better. No sorries about that. <laughs> There's a place for being, you know, compassionate. I as think well. it's an acknowledgement. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was like the idle sorry is the no but because, uh, the yeah but because it's seen as an excuse fundamentally, which is the wrong attitude. Well, coachability is like if I provide some constructive feedback on improvement, then they go, yeah, but such and such did, you know, all that. It's not taking ownership. No, it's absorbing it. You're defending it. Yeah, you've already, you know, I'm doing it. You know, it's my way. I'm already doing it. All right. That's sort of the perception that gets not received. able to receive that information. Yeah, it's a someone else or something else is is contributing to why. It's like, yeah, it's not taking responsibility. My own kids ownership, piece, the ability of seeking constructive feedback as well, not being a passive recipient of feedback, but going into a coach and saying, "What do you think I could do better?" And let's say you're on the fringe of making a team. Man, you know, at that point, a young teenager might get despondent. I dropped out. I'm upset, which is fine. You should, it's okay to get upset if you get cut from the team. But rather than giving up and getting despondent, go back to that coach who cut you from mm. the team and saw there were, they obviously saw something in you initially. Go back and say, okay, taking it on board. What do I need to do to improve and get better? What are the things I should be working on? And I, and then go away and do it. And I've seen firsthand a few times just in teenage sport where that attitude has got them back in that side <laughs> just through sheer wanting to improve and asking and being coachable. What's that maturity thing that Troisi's touched on? Mm. Like if you're not willing to ask that question, you're not going to get that comment and you can't take it from there, I suppose. You're not change for change or, or you're just not asking just for the sake of asking because you're, you know, I ask. You're a genuine want to be better. Yeah, it's change for purpose. Or purposeful change, whatever you, however you want to phrase it. But yeah, not change for change. Think about people in your own teams that the difference between having to sit someone down and saying, listen, we've got to work on this, 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 and you can see the eyes roll back and the stone cold face come down versus somebody else who comes in and says, hey, Pat, Troy, I really want to go to the next level. What do I need to do? You know, well, What even, are the things yeah. I need to work on to be better and contribute more to this team? Troy's and I have had conversations about with some of the kids where they didn't know what they didn't know and even where it wasn't requested by them, but it was pushed by us. And once there's that recognition of, oh, was I not doing that very well? You're like, no, well, <laughs> not from our perspective. No, mm. you would probably hear here and here. And the change in those people that have been open to taking on that feedback and to change has been quite drastic in some cases. Mm. And all it took was a pretty relaxed conversation about how they were going and, and giving I, some feedback. I think one of those things, you, one of you boys said it before is the trust the trust both ways there for the person receiving the feedback. You know, there's a lot of trust they give to you guys to handle that 
feedback in a you know an appropriate manner. Well, it's a feedback loop for us too. So we might be coaching them wrong. There could Correct. be something that after coaching 10 staff, 20 staff, 100 staff, we've missed something. And so even getting their feedback of, hey, not just system-based, like I don't like how Penzard does ABC, but when you I'd said this to me, that did this to me. more than happy to have that feedback, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I think even from our level is despite what the perception of experience might be going, we need to be open to that feedback and change also. That's true. It's not one Very way, the change point. piece. So Asking for opinions and- and, what and do you reckon? Like, yeah, stuff like that's the process. Yeah. Asking the questions that like that will draw out the information that you're after in a group environment. So always a challenge. But a couple of small things: the small team versus the big hierarchy. We developed that pod structure a few years ago around project delivery teams. Large hierarchies to us become bureaucratical. So. I think for us, it's around, again, it's that freedom of the framework. If you create a framework and then you can have people that are several arms distance away from you and you actually want that because that's the scalability and that growth piece. So small teams is good. Again, it's under a larger group framework, obviously, but. Yeah, the maturity of like, how do you get a bunch of high performing people who can do the same thing to work together to get a single one line of communication or one line of production or one whatever it is that you're trying to achieve is like how can you get them to work together but without them feeling like they aren't a part of the delivering a major part of the project you know like I can do everything really well and then you're saying I don't want you to do those three things and then somebody else is going to do that it's very <laughs> it's a hard it's a hard dynamic with that team and sport you have that there's People within the groups that are usually better in, like, they're just as good in another position, but I need them to play this role in this position today or for the group. So it's understanding what the personal outcome versus what the, the team outcome is a yeah. lot of the times. And while we put you together, we're hoping it's the best team to get the outcome or the uh, achieve the, um, the outcome you're And after. that's that vision piece. Like we've had built or put some teams together sometimes that maybe didn't work quite so well at initial in its infancy and then later down the path we had a vision of what we thought it would look like and maybe it comes to full fruition maybe it doesn't but try and explain the vision of what we're trying to get out of that team because i think sometimes people come together may not see that logic in that decision same as probably a coach doesn't some players don't see the logic in a coach's decision earlier on but there is usually an intent behind it but you've got to have people that are willing to be part of a team fundamentally that have some individuality but are comfortable with the team approach and that trust approach of being in a team yeah yep for sure. I like the no sorrows. That's a good one. <laughs> it is a good one. I think one of the dangers of having very large, cumbersome teams is that the people at the top start to become irrelevant and out of touch. And that's kind of, in my mind, why I am drawn to, I guess, the sort of structure we have now, which is, you know, people in charge of areas, but not too many layers in an organization so that the leaders of the business are actually in touch with what's going on and not not becoming out of touch, I guess, is, is the thing. And some of those other larger organisations, like even some of our clients, have a quite a hierarchical structure. The problem with that is, you know, someone seven steps up the chain is making a decision, but the person seven layers down the chain has done all the effort to get the decision made. It just has to be ticked off by someone up the chain. Yeah, our logic is, well, if you know all, you have all the knowledge in your head, you've put all the data together, you make the decision. Like, you're the best placed person to make that decision because you've gone to all the effort of doing it. So much Troy and I, like, if we get asked to make a decision, we're going, I know only what you've told me, which is a snippet of, you know, the context of that issue. We're the worst place to make a decision on that, apart mm. from overlaying potentially an experience piece or a, a learning piece from associated projects. But 
other than that, like a project engineer is the best person to make a decision on a project engineering related issue for that job because they're in the detail. As soon as you remove them out of it, people are making decisions that have no context in the issue. Yeah. If you've got to ask, if it can't be made at the coalface, then it's got to be, you know, it takes time to go back to the next person. If it can't be made there, it goes back another layer, back another layer, back another layer. It's not efficient. Yeah. Decentralized decision making. Yeah. And And that's the empowerment piece, the trust piece and the framework. But like there's all those layers that build into that. But we've we've covered a lot of ground here today. (laughs) I want to read you something and this really speaks to resilience and I thought I'd take the opportunity to read this passage, which is all about putting yourself out on a limb and having a go and not listening to the critics, if that makes sense. So this was actually read at my one of my kids' final sporting, you know, where they had the presentation dinner and they didn't go well. They'd trained really hard six months, six days a week, and one of the senior leaders from the team read this out and I just thought I'd uh, get your thoughts on this. It's called The Man in the Arena. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles. And by the way, man, woman, kids interchangeable. This is written by Theodore Roosevelt in 1910. (laughs) The strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again, because there's no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who, at the worst, if he fails, at least fails, by daring greatly, so that his place shall never be in those cold and timid souls who neither know victory or defeat. The couple of things I'll link to that was, I like the term, you know, looking for suffering. And some of that's around having a go is, to me, to get that, and we talk about letting engineers and all the people in the teams make decisions because you feel that validation that if you're not having a go and seeing an achievement, if you don't have that validation fundamentally with what you're doing, I think, and therefore knowing some suffering along the way, then you don't have a purpose or it's hard to find that purpose and have that proper enjoyment in life. Mm. So I like the idea of hunting out the suffering and failing because then you'll enjoy the other side a lot better and you'll have validation when you eventually get there. Trying new things sometimes too if you're not challenging yourself i love this passage when i heard this it summed up everything for me in that to achieve great results you have to fail and there's a lot of people in this world who want to watch you fail who actually get satisfaction from seeing somebody else try and fail because they themselves aren't capable of putting themselves out there and they'll never achieve greatness and and it sort of almost gives permission for people to try and come up short, take the criticism, keep trying and ignore that outside noise because in the end, they're the people who will achieve greatness. A lot of the inherent business owners are not actually the best and brightest people. They, they were just, just willing trying. to have a go. They just keep trying. You know, trying. like in the EO, we've met a bunch of business owners. They're not all the superstars of the world that you would expect, but they just said, well, I'm going to try it and see how it goes. And obviously, there's usually a bit of detail behind themselves. that. But yeah. There's a core element to them. There's usually some foundation to be able to be comfortable enough to do that as well. Like be afraid or be fearful of things um, is different. 
you can still do it. You've got to have some fear. Otherwise, you, you're probably not challenging yourself. And to go forward, you need to, or to improve on something, sometimes you've got to challenge yourself on that. Yeah, being uncomfortable is good. All right. Well, you boys came in here with that mindset of being uncomfortable. It's been a great chat. We've talked, you know, ask why, strikers, midfielders, defenders, freedom and flair, vision, transparency, no sorries, no yeah buts. And I really like the values of the kookaburras that you mentioned, committed, selfless and relentless. Troy Mm. and Pat, thanks for coming in and sharing your thoughts today. Thanks, Carlos. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of Free Dive. We look forward to you joining in for our next episode. If you'd like to share your story, send us an email at freedive at pensar.com.au. We look forward to hearing from you. And remember, if you enjoyed it, tell your friends. Tell your friends.